But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, or, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we discuss it this morning. I wonder if any of you have ever uh, taken part in either burying or digging up a time capsule. Anybody done that? Nobody? Not even like a little one in your back? Okay, a few, a few. Um, I, I haven't. Um, <laughs> but but um, we see it and, and we know the concept. It's, it's the idea of taking sort of, if you can, a slice of time uh, and putting it aside. Uh, and, and the goal, I guess, whenever it's opened is, is really to have a mark of how things have changed, to see the difference in the time that it was buried, the time that it was dug up. Uh, 2015, um, digging crews at MIT found a glass capsule uh, that had been expertly sealed and filled with argon, argon gas, an inert gas, so nothing inside would be destroyed. They cracked the capsule, so they kind of ruined it. Um, but uh, they found it, and it had a note on the outside not to be opened until 2957, 1,000 years after it was buried. Uh, and it had all the boring stuff, right? It had, it had newspaper clippings, and it had, you know, things that were happening in 1957. It also had cutting-edge technology for the time, uh, like a vial of penicillin, uh, the, the forefront of, of medical advances. It wasn't until after World War II that the United States made penicillin readily available to, uh, to the ordinary citizen. This was a huge thing in 1957. Uh, and I guess the, the goal is that if it's still there in a 1,000 years, what will become, what will people think of the change uh, in those thousand years uh, that have gone by. Uh, last time, we took a deep dive into the question of marriage, uh, the sacredness of the institution, God's design for Christians, marrying Christians, staying married for life, 
Uh, and what we found is the, the reason for divorce among the people and the reason uh, for their intermarrying with the nations around them was really that they had lowered their standards. That as time went on, uh, they, they began to, lay, to let go of some of the standards the Lord had given them in their covenant. And this was really a symptom that we've seen already throughout Malachi. The same thing happened in worship uh, in the, the priests in the temple. The Lord had given them uh, certain standards for which animals ought to be sacrificed, and the priests weren't paying attention because it was easier to, to give blemished or blind animals and to take things that were less than what uh, God had said. And we, we saw sort of, as the priests, so also the people. As the priests have perverted worship, so also the people have been, been uh, perverted in the way that they uh, worship the Lord. And uh, we found that we are essentially worshiping creatures. All that we do flows from who and how we worship, and if we lower our standards before the Lord, it causes ripples that flow into every area of our lives. Well, today, uh, as we look at these two passages, we're going to see that same theme uh, taken over and over again. Two more examples of the danger of changing our standards. First, we'll see uh, in chapter 2, 17, uh, to chapter 3, verse 5, um, the, the people accusing the Lord of having changed his standards. Uh, this is their charge against him. Oh, the Lord now loves those who are evil. It's good to be bad in the sight of the Lord. Whereas the Lord used to be righteous, uh, apparently the Lord has changed his standards. And, and where is this God that we used to know? Where is the God of the covenant and when will he show up? And they're accusing the Lord of, of changing his standards. Uh, we infer that in their straits, uh, they've returned from, uh, from exile and they have been crying to the Lord uh, to come and clean house, to set things right, to reestablish the people in the land. And at the end, uh, or in the middle rather, the Lord promises that he's going to do that. But when he does, he will reveal the fact that his standards have not actually changed. Uh, and his coming to the people will be something that is um, a bit more uncomfortable than they're prepared for. So that's, that's the first passage, and we'll dive into that in a little bit. Uh, secondly, uh, in verses 6 to 12, maybe verse 6, and we'll talk about that, maybe verse 7. Um, we see the effects of neglecting to serve the Lord with the fullness of our possessions. It's a problem of tithing. Where people have returned to the land from exile. Uh, things haven't gone the way that they expected. Their crops um, are, are not what they wanted. And, and so they're sort of hedging bets against the future by holding back what they would have been bringing to the Lord, the full tenth, the full contribution into the storehouses. And the Lord says, you're robbing me. Uh, you've changed your standards. I have these standards, and you're not listening to them, and instead you're, you're choosing your own ways, uh, and the Lord calls it robbery. Uh, and so we have both of these things, where, where the people are accusing God of changing his standards, and God is actually saying, no, 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 you're not living up uh, to what I have said. But in the middle is this verse 6, uh, and uh, in the middle of these two problems, there's a verse that most of our English translations don't know where to put it. So you might have uh, a, a version in front of you. If you've got the King James, uh, the paragraph ends with verse 6, right? Um, if you have the ESV, a paragraph begins with verse 6. If you have the NASB, uh, the paragraph ends with verse 7, and we're not sure where to put it. Uh, but verse 6 really is this perfect Janus looking in two directions, uh, looking back at the problem of what the people think the Lord has been doing and looking forward to what uh, God is calling the people to. And it's this idea this doctrine of, of the unchangeableness of God, the, theoretic, or the theological term is the immutability, the fact that God does not change, that his years uh, have no end. Um, and the Lord is saying there is no slice of his character uh, which somebody could bury and then dig up a thousand years later and say, wow, 
things have really, really changed here. Uh, the Lord, no, he's, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. His years have no end. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is the basis uh, of, uh, of our spiritual security. It's the fact that our God is the same and he does not change. You find it on the lips of Balaam. All the way back in Numbers, uh, this pagan uh, prophet who was hired to curse the Israelites, this is what he says in Numbers chapter 23, verses 18 to 20. Balaam took up his discourse and he said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. So here's what we find. Uh, in our passage today, and we're going to open the discussion uh, in just a moment, uh, we find a reminder of the unchanging character of the Lord. Uh, we find that together with the prophecy of his coming to refine his people, uh, to establish them in righteousness by his divine messenger, and also a call to serve the Lord in faithfulness, giving to him from our first abundance, and trusting that he will supply our need according to his riches in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, uh, those are the introductory comments. Now, time for a little bit of uh, interaction. As we look at this first section where the people are accusing the Lord uh, of having changed, um, what is, what's going on here? We see that they are saying, well, the, the Lord has changed. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Um, but what we see in, in one sense could be downplayed. Uh, we could see this almost in light of Psalm 73, Psalm 37, where where godly people are wrestling with uh, the prosperity of the wicked. This is what is, is spurring their question. Well, how do they know uh, what God loves? Well, well, they're judging by the way that he treats them. Clearly, there are wicked people in the land who aren't being judged and thrown out, and so they infer that God must love the wicked, apparently. He, he's given up judging. Uh, and when will he show up, by the way? Uh, and there, there's a sense of that, if you remember Psalm 73, uh, Psalm 37, Psalm 73 says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. And all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You see the same thing in Habakkuk chapter 1. Oh Lord, how long will I cry to help and you not hear or cry violence and you will not save? You hear the same thing in Jeremiah Chapter 12, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root and they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. So what is it that makes the difference as we sort of set up this, this question of wrestling with God's providence? What is it that makes the difference between what the Lord says here? He says, the way that you're doing this is wearying me. And the way that maybe in Psalm 73, godly people can, can wrestle with, well, what are we to think about the prosperity of the wicked? What about Jeremiah, who, who wants to plead his case before the Lord? Is that wearying him? What makes the difference between a godly way of, of thinking and wrestling through the prosperity of the wicked and, and God's mysterious providence and, and the way that the people are wearying the Lord here? What do you think? Dave? Dave? Time scale? What do you mean? Uh, 
Yeah, and, and I obviously didn't quote the entire psalm for you, but that's exactly where that psalm goes. Um, the, the psalm ends or, or, or trends in the direction of, then I considered their end. And what was the end of the wicked one? Will, will you rouse yourself and they flee? Uh, that even if the wicked are prosperous in this life, there is a final judgment coming. And there is this faithfulness that, that the Lord will come and judge. Um, how does that contrast with what the people in Malachi's day were saying? Tim? Yeah. Yeah, instead of, instead of um, taking their concerns to the Lord from the standpoint of faith, uh, they're, they're really raising a complaint. They're charging the Lord with wrong. They're, God doesn't care about this. Where is he? When's he going to show up? And the Lord says that it wearies him. What else? What makes the difference, Tim? Yeah, and so it comes back to this idea of, well, how do you, how do you value your own life anyway? Uh, is it just about the things that you can find here? It, are things going to go well if you're just back in the land, and as it says later, uh, the Lord will pour down a blessing on you until there's no more need, and all the people of all the nations will call you blessed. Is that what life is really about if it's just having things here? And so there is, there is this longer time scale and thinking through, well, what will happen to the wicked? There's also a longer time scale in thinking through what is the Lord doing with us? Is he just putting us under his thumb because we, we feel bad that we don't have the things that we want or is there something else at play? Good. Okay, well, let's keep moving then. Uh, the Lord says, uh, behold, I send my messenger. Uh, what is God's response to their charge of delighting in the wicked or asking where the Lord is? They say, where is the Lord? What does he say? Tim? He's coming. He's coming. Yeah. Yeah, we very often, um, we, we quote this, um, you know, you go and you see the, the Messiah every year, and it's sung, and uh, behold, the, the Lord whom you, you desire will suddenly come to his temple. Um, and we, we think of the joy of Christ coming very often, and we associate it with that, and it is. Um, but but it, it's not necessarily just the joy of Christ coming. This is, this is purgation. This, this is purifying language. It's not something uh, that the people will be comfortable with. It will not be something that everybody says, wow, isn't it great that the Lord is here? Uh, he's actually giving them a warning. Uh, he, he's, he's now, there, there's something good that comes out of that, Right? Um, but he's, he's saying, who can stand when the Lord comes? Tim. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, yeah. and they cover their ears and they tell Moses, you speak to us. We don't want to listen to the Lord uh, because it's terrifying. Yeah, how, uh, how clear is our, our hindsight that we, oh yeah, wouldn't it be great if the Lord would show up? Well, not, not as great as you think it would be in some sense, 
It is. It is. Uh, and and there is um, there is a, 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 a trend toward blessing in all of this. This is an unmitigated disaster. The Lord isn't saying, like he says to the nations, I'm coming to just destroy everything. It's not even what we saw in Amos where the Lord was saying, look, you're all wicked and, and we're going to have a reset. We're, we're starting over in a sense after 70 years. Uh, the Lord is, no, he's, he's purifying. And there's hope in that. Uh, there's this language of, of purification and, and refining. Good. Um, what do you see in, in this language here that's uh, ominous? We, we've spoken about it already, but, but what uh, should stir the people up uh, to realize um, that the Lord is coming in a way that they may not, may not quite comprehend? Yeah, Jason. Suddenly, absolutely. Yeah, um, the Lord showing up and, uh, and people not being ready. Uh, that idea, uh, exactly, the thief in the night, and the Lord tells his people, stay awake, uh, keep sober, uh, be sober-minded, because the Lord comes at an hour that you do not know. Uh, and uh, and th there's almost uh, this idea of, uh, of Peter's language in the New Testament. Um, I think he picks up on, on some of this. Well, the Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, uh, but he is patient, waiting that all should come to repentance. And, and there's... They're impatient for the Lord to show up. And God is saying, well, I, I'm, I'm slow. Uh, I'm waiting. But when I come, it's also that language of Peter that the, the heavens will burn and, and all of the, uh, the heavenly hosts dissolve as with fire. Uh, this idea that when he comes, uh, there is this burning. Dave. What are the tools the Lord has given us? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now he does, at the end, he lists some of these decadences um, that he is concerned about, and certainly that the people would have been concerned about. So it's interesting to note that they are coming to the Lord with a moral argument. They have some basis for saying, well, this is right and this is wrong, and clearly the Lord is out of touch with what we think is right and wrong. Uh, now, the standard for the Jews, obviously, is God's law. Where would they learn what is right and what is wrong? Well, there, there's the uh, inward um, voice of, of uh, the image of God uh, imprinted upon every, every human being. That we know, uh, in a sense, what is right and wrong. Uh, but the Lord has even given them more. He's given them his word. He's, he's exposed later in this passage uh, what he thinks about sorcerers and adulterers, those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired workers, wages, the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner. The Lord has spoken very clearly about these things. This is what he cares about. And so they have some basis, I think, and the Lord is reminding them of the basis, that what are the tools that he's given them to restrain this decadence? Well, it's his law. And yet the people are, are coming to the Lord. So, so there's this, in reform circles, there is this 
idea of the three uses of the law. Everybody aware of this? Um, so what are the things that the law does for us? Well, first, it exposes our sin. It's like a mirror. It shows us our need for Christ. It's not good news. The law shows us how far we have fallen from God's perfect uh, standard. Secondly, it restrains evil in the world and in the church because of the threat of judgment that the Lord shows up and says, here is my standard, you've broken it, and I will judge those who break it. And so there is, there is this sense, uh, it's the way that a law works uh, in, in society. There have to be some people who, who would want to be murderous thieves, and yet they're afraid of getting caught. Right? And so it's a restraint on evil doing. But then for believers, uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, uh, the law becomes a guide for us. As the Holy Spirit works in us, it, it, the law shows us, and the Holy Spirit leads us in how we can, we can follow the Lord more closely and more faithfully. Well, the people in Israel seem to have been uh, showing up to the Lord uh, and, and saying, you know, the problem is, uh, that they thought they were able to live according to the third use of the law. We're good. We're, we're, we don't need any guidance, but what we need is for the Lord to show up and judge others. And so they're looking at all the wickedness, and they're saying, it's, it's out there. When is the Lord going to come to judge out there? And he's saying, I'm going to come, but I'm going to judge everybody on the same standard, and it's not going to be comfortable. And so he, he is pulling them back to the tools that he's given them. He's pulling them back to his law. What has the Lord said about these things, about the decadences uh, in the land, about his standards for his people? And he comes back. This is why this, this anchor point in verse 6 is so clear. I, the Lord, do not change. The things that I think are evil at one time are still evil at another time. We need to remember this in our culture. In all sorts of ways, not just the ones that we like to talk about in conservative circles, but all sorts of the ways uh, that our culture is running headlong uh, into disobedience to the Lord, uh, and brushing it off and saying, you know, times have changed. Times are different now, right? We can, we can do that. That's not a big deal. No, nobody thinks about that. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Uh, he's speaking to his people. Hundreds of years ago, it was still wrong to be an adulterer or a sorcerer and all these other things. And it's still wrong to be these things. And I'll come with the same, same standard. Dave, what would, you, what would you respond to that? Regulative principle of worship. Yeah. 
Now, the danger is that it's always easier to apply God's principles to others than it is to apply them to ourselves. And this is the problem in Israel. They're looking and saying, ah, oh, those people need to be set right. And the Lord's saying, who can stand in the day of his coming? Um, you know, not, the, no, not those people that are wicked over there, but not the people that are wicked over here either. Um, absolutely, I, I agree totally um, with, with your statement um, that this creativity and worship is, is part of the foundational problem. Um, but also, we need to, to hear the caution the Lord's giving to the people that he's calling them to be reformed while they're thinking that everybody else needs to be reformed as well. Okay. So we know who uh, these messengers are, right? There are two messengers listed. There's my messenger, who will go before me, and the messenger of the covenant. Who are they, and how do you know? If you want to answer an easy question today, these are the ones. What's that? John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, absolutely. And we know that, not because we can work out the numerology in the text, not because uh, you know, we've gotten the hidden key, but because Jesus quotes this text in the New Testament. He, t he talks about John the Baptist. Uh, he talks about uh, people going out to see him, and he says, well, yeah, this is what the Lord said. I'm going to send my messenger before you. Now, this is the messenger of, of, of Malachi 3. This is the messenger of, of Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And so this is a statement really about who Jesus is as well. What does he do? He shows up suddenly in the temple. And in John's gospel, uh, I think it actually happens twice. John records the one that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the other gospels record it happening at the end of Jesus' ministry. First, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness shows up, and then the Lord shows up in his temple, and he drives out the money changers. It happens in Luke cha or John chapter 2, very early. Uh, in, in Jesus' ministry. And so this is important. This is telling us something about who Jesus is. Well, he's, he's the Lord himself. He says, I'll, he will prepare the way before me. And suddenly he'll come to the temple, this Lord of the covenant, and the same covenant faithfulness, the God who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Good. We, we need to keep moving on. Uh, this church doesn't have a clock anywhere. I love that. I love that. Um, so if I incessantly check my watch, uh, that's, that's what I'm doing, and uh, if I preach until 2.30 today, you'll know why. It's not, it's now 10 past 10? At, at the tone, the time will be. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Good. Uh, so let's, let's keep moving here. Um, let's take a, a brief look at verse 6, which really is the anchor to the whole thing. Um, this is the third time... Uh, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is the third time in Malachi's very short book that he's used the name Jacob to refer to Israel. Sometimes in the Old Testament that's significant. Sometimes it's not. Uh, but we see it first in chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. It shows up also in chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Well, this was talking about uh, profaning the covenant and having one father and being married uh, to, uh, to wives uh, of foreign nations and foreign gods. Is there a significance here in the Lord contrasting his changelessness with the tribe of Jacob. And if there is, what do you think the point is that God's making? We'll wait for somebody who hasn't gotten to speak yet. 
I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What do you know about Jacob? What does his name mean? Deceiver. The heel grabber. The hypocrite who goes back and forth. Right? Um, the, the one who went into the foreign land to flee from his brother. Uh, and yet throughout, the Lord has, has said from the very beginning, I've loved you. And they said, ah, come on. How have you loved us? He says, don't forget Jacob. Don't forget your deceiving forefather who came out grabbing at the heel. Uh, don't forget the one who stole the blessing. And yet it's been, it's been God's plan all along. This changeless decree to bless those whom he will bless, to harden those whom he will harden. And the Lord's saying, look, this is the anchor of everything that we're dealing with, my covenant faithfulness. It's the fact that I don't change. Beautiful picture in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is God? Question four. Well, God is a spirit. He is uh, eternal, uh, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And then a whole host of uh, attributes that are unchangeable. Unchangeable, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, uh, wisdom, holiness, power, excuse me, being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The Catechism says the Lord doesn't change in any of those attributes. His truth is always his truth. His holiness is always his holiness. His being is always his holiness. From beginning to end and, and beyond, these things don't change. And so I, I think there's a word for us here. Uh, and that is when we find ourselves twisting and deceiving like Jacob. When we find ourselves following the, four step, uh, the, the footsteps of, of Israel's forefather. Uh, remember, well, well, what is it that keeps us in, in the grip of God's eternal hand? Well, it's, it's not your goodness today. Um, but it's, it's his unchangeableness. Uh, he, the Lord, does not change. He knows those who are his and he holds them and no one can snatch them out of his hand. All right, so moving into this second section, we find uh, a sort of double disputation. Every other uh, argument has been one disputation. The Lord levels a charge. The people say, come on, how is that possible? And then the Lord responds. Here, here we see two, and I think they're connected. Uh, the first one, um, he says, return to me. And the second one, he says, you're robbing me. And they ask, well, how will we return to God, and how have we robbed you? Um, Based on what you know, the previous exchanges between the Lord and his people, uh, what do you think Israel has in mind when they ask, how shall we return to you? Are they genuinely seeking the way to get back to the Lord? How shall we return? Well, well give, us the, give us the directions. We'll turn by turn. Is that what they have in mind, Garrison? Five quick steps to give one crazy trick to write your relationship with the Lord. No. Yeah, they're, they're, they're downplaying the fact that, uh, that they are far off course. Well, maybe it's just an easy thing. Um, maybe it goes further. Um, I've loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us? It's a challenge. This isn't true. Return to me, says the Lord. How should we return to you? It's a challenge. We don't need... What do you mean return to you? We've never turned away from you. How could you call us to return if we've not turned away? Tim. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of the other prophets talked about 
um, the exile and the effect that it would have. And at the end of the 70 years, the Lord would bring his people back and they would return to him. And so here they are. The temple's been rebuilt. It's pretty mediocre. But the temple's been rebuilt and all the old men cried when they saw it. Uh, but here they are. Uh, they've returned, right? They've got the law, right? They've got the sacrifices, right? They've got all the things in all the little places. How should we return to you? What are you talking about? Okay. Um, the New Living Translation, I think, gets it pretty well. Um, translates it, but you ask, how can we return when we've never gone away? Uh, notice these, these ideas. Uh, the Lord says, uh, return to me. Uh, look, look at verse 7 again. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Now, you would expect, if there's a parallelism here, that the Lord would say, you've turned away from my statutes, you've not kept my statutes, so return to my statutes. But that's not what he says. He says, you've turned away from my statutes, this law that we were talking about before, so return to me. But the Lord has given his law as a reflection of his own character, in a sense. This is what he wants his people to do and to be. You shall therefore be holy as the Lord your God is holy. These are the statutes the Lord has given. And he says, when you turn away from my statutes, you actually turn away from me. Here's the danger in downplaying and, and saying the Lord changes and reading the New Testament or the Old Testament and saying, well, that's really just cultural. We can do away with that, right? Well, no, when you turn away from God's statutes, you turn away from the Lord. It's not a simple uh, fact of just, well, I don't want to listen to this portion, so I'm going to construct an image of God in, in my own making. Uh, that's what I want. That makes me feel comfy. The Lord says, no, return to me. Here's how one um, commentator puts it. He says, By turning from the Lord's decrees, the people have turned from the Lord himself. We cannot follow God without the guidance of his word, which must be carefully heeded to avoid stumbling or turning from the path. All right, so there's another rebuke, uh, and it is the twin to the first one. The people are robbing God. Uh, and notice, this is the answer, I think, uh, to their hypothetical question. How shall we return? The Lord says, well... Uh, start with bringing in what you ought to be bringing in. And then the rest of this, uh, this passage deals with that big sticky question that lots of Christians have. Do we tithe? Do we not tithe? Maybe that's, maybe that's not a question in your mind. I know that in the circles that I grew up in and came out of, that's a big question. Um, and so what does Malachi, uh, how does Malachi help us to, to think through these issues Tithe, obviously, is biblical in the Old Testament. Is a tithe biblical in the New Testament? And how do we know? There's a big question. Well, a tithe is biblical because every Sunday the pastor says the deacons will collect the tithes and offerings. Right? No, no, no. Uh, what about the text? What, what do we see here? What's the point of the tithe? It's trusting in the Lord. It, it is this idea of, of a stewardship. It's trusting in the Lord with what he has allowed us uh, to, uh, to deal with uh, and, and to manage, and yet realizing that those things don't actually belong to us. Right? And this is, this is the theme throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the Lord put the people in the promised land, and he said, the land doesn't belong to you, it belongs to me. Uh, you're just tenants. He says you're sojourners. He, he actually calls them aliens or sojourners, foreigners with him on his land. Tenant farmers. 
Uh, and so anything that they have, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills, it belongs to the Lord. So it begins with this idea of stewardship, this idea of, of trusting the Lord with what he has entrusted to us. Good. What else? What do you see in the passage that, that helps us to understand what the tithe is all about and how we can parse out some of these things? Jason. Absolutely. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let uh, our treasurer take over now. And we'll <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you see that really that the place, you're next, Brian. Uh, so the place that we see um, the tithe um, most clearly dealt with in the Old Testament is Numbers chapter 18, which is where it designates uh, that all the people will take a tenth of what belongs to them. The word tithe, by the way, really just means tenth. Uh, so you'll take a tenth, you'll take a tithe. And they're to give from the first of everything and bring it to the central location. Uh, where it was given to the Levites because they did not have an inheritance in the land as the others did. The others had plots of land that were given to their children in perpetuity. It was kept in the family name. Uh, you had a farm that at the end of the seven years jubilee, the, the, the 49th and 50th year, uh, the people would return to the land and you always had some sort of security there. The Levites didn't. And so the Levites received from the offerings of the people, from the crops all throughout the nations, uh, to, uh, to support them. And actually, uh, from the Levites' tithe, they gave a tithe. So they gave a tenth of a tenth. So a single percent uh, of all that was brought in went to the priests. There were the sort of two uh, levels there. There were the priests and the Levites, uh, and they were each taken care of by the, uh, the contributions of the people. Brian. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It was a mathematical certainty. <laughs> it wasn't a, uh, I don't know. It was, count the sheep as they go through. Every tenth one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so here's a very clear indication. Well, how are they, uh, how are they turning from God's statutes? Well, they're robbing him. They're not bringing in um, what they should have been bringing in to support the Levites and the priests uh, to pay their salary, in a sense. And also, also, it talks not just about tithes, but about contributions. These are the voluntary gifts. These are the ones that are brought in excess and given sometimes to the priest. Very often, they're shared with the poor in the land. And so not only have they gotten to the level, they haven't gotten to the level of, of dealing with, with the mandated giving. The Lord almost is calling them, well, you've got to get to that 10%, and then you can, you can start doing a little bit more because there are people you've just seen um, Against those who oppress the hired worker, his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. There are poor in the land that the people ought to be caring for, and some of that came from the tithes and the contributions. Yeah, Scott. Okay. 
Absolutely. We get a, an understanding when, when, we, when we read, well, what is, what is this test that the Lord is giving them? This is a really strange uh, phrase in the Old Testament, put me to the test. Uh, actually, no, the, the rest of the Old Testament says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The, you know, the devil shows up in the wilderness with Jesus. Do this. No, 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 no. You, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, but here he says, well, test me. And I'll do two things. He says, I'll open the, the windows of heaven and I will rebuke the destroyer. Now, uh, these are metaphors. Uh, typically, it's understood as um, just sort of, well, God will bless you abundantly. And so if he opens the floodgates of heaven in, in our uh, society, maybe that means he'll enrich your 401k. He'll cause your investments to skyrocket, whatever. Um, but this is an agricultural society. The windows of heaven, it's probably rain. And the devourer, look what it says about the devourer. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. So there's, there's either a blight or there's a locust or there's a something. So they're dealing with some kind of drought and some kind of, um, some kind of natural phenomenon, whatever is killing their crops. And they're looking at things that are outside of their control. It's not just like, well, here's an, a raiding army let's gird on our swords and let's take care of them. They're realizing they're at the mercy of the elements and the Lord who is in control of the elements, and so they're doing exactly what Scott is telling us. I don't know that the Lord is going to care for us. Let's hold off a little bit. Let's, let's wait and see how things play out before we take that. We might need that extra tent, and so let's hold on to it. Mike. Yeah. Absolutely. So there is, there is this, this spiritual tension that maybe talks about the, well, what's the roots of why would people go to the degree of robbing the Lord, of taking from him what, what was his already? Well, it's because they don't trust, but, but they're also, because of their lack of trust, they're simply not being obedient. You see this in your kids. Uh, you know, uh, you, you want them to trust you, you want them to obey, and, and you tell them things will work out better for you. If you follow the way that I'm going, your kids go, I don't know. And so they, they go in the other direction. I can't think of an opportunity or an example off the top of my head uh, with which to embarrass my children, so I won't venture that. But you, you know how it works, right? Uh, but there, it, it comes down to the level of obedience or disobedience. Uh, you've, diso you've turned from my statutes. You are robbing the Lord. Uh, and this idea that, that it is his. There's this stewardship. Now, does this still apply... This, this, this is all very good, right? Um, and this is talking about what happened in national Israel with the temple and with all of these things. Does this still apply for New Testament Christians? Tim says yes. We'll, we'll take an informal vote, straw vote. Good. Now, now it's, it's true that there is no repetition of this phrase, uh, this command for a tithe in the New Testament. Tim? God doesn't change. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, he doesn't change. Now, here's, here's I agree with you. Uh, here's the argument that could be made, um, that when you see the tithes show up, it's a part of the ceremonial law, not God's moral law. 
And God has actually changed the ceremonial law. He has actually changed what is clean and what is unclean. He has changed uh, the, the, uh, the sacrificial mandate because now he sent a perfect sacrifice. All these things were fulfilled, right? Has the tithe been fulfilled and abrogated the way that the rest of the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and abrogated? Kathy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Brian. I would disagree with you a little bit. Um, I think it does show up in the Didache, which is a second century document uh, in the ancient church before there was Christendom, before there was a, a Christian uh, land tax by the state. I think there is also um, some precedent. So there are a few places in the New Testament where if you believe in the biblical mandate for a New Testament tithe, you would turn. We are short on time, so I'll mention them. Um, so one of them... Uh, is in, where is it? It's somewhere. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, wherever he's talking to the Pharisees. Um, and he says, woe to you because you tithe mint and dill and cumin and you neglect the weightier matters of the law. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the former. Now we could say uh, Jesus is clearly upholding the tithes, but that's a pretty Jewish context. Jewish teacher talking to Jewish rabbis, pre-resurrection. Okay, all right. Um, but in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's turn there. If I can find it, suddenly don't have it in my notes. Aha, uh -huh. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> it says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? This is pretty clearly a reference to the purpose of the tithe in the Old Testament. And then the next verse, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, this does not give us a figure of 10%. But it does lay a pretty clear precedent that just as in the Old Testament dispensation, those who labor, and that was one of the primary reasons for the, the tithe, 
those who labor in the Old Testament get their living by uh, the, the offerings, the contributions. He says, so also the Lord has, has commanded. Um, I don't doubt the land tax and all that other stuff. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that this is, this is kind of a hard issue. I think there is some New Testament uh, precedent, but I, I think really, um, Kathy, you, your comments are very helpful. Here's, here's what we find in the Reformation Study Bible, which is also very helpful. Um, it says this, because the tithe is a covenantal obligation under the Sinai covenant, specific blessings and curses were attached to it. Now, that's the reason that God says, test me in this. He's talking about his faithfulness to the promises that he's already made. If you live by my statutes, I will give you these blessings. Deuteronomy chapter 28. You could see them. You could, you could line them out. And the Lord says, test me. I am faithful to my word. Um, so because uh, covenantal obligation under the Sinai covenant, specific blessings and curses were attached to it. Under the new covenant, Paul calls us to excel in the grace of giving, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This suggests that love should move us to a greater generosity than the law ever could, and that the old covenant tithe is really just the minimum that people should give to God's work. I don't know, I, I'm not going to stand in the pulpit and tell you, by the way, if you're not giving 11%, more than the minimum, you're, you're somehow sinning. I, I wouldn't take that that stance, I think it's a pretty good, pretty good place to start, uh, that, uh, that if what we have in the New Testament is the spiritual reality of many of the shadows of the law in the Old Testament that are really expanded, well, no, no, it's not just, it's not just circumcised in your flesh, it's circumcision in your heart. It's not just a law written on tablets of stone, it's a law written on your heart. It's not just a tithe for these little things, it's it's God loving a cheerful giver. And I think that's the, the standard that we use here and, and ultimately come back to the idea that the Lord our God hasn't changed. Now, uh, I'm going to stop because um, we're at the time, although you wouldn't know it. Um, I can't wait to preach this afternoon. This will be great. Um, I'm going to pray uh, and let's, let's finish. Oh, gracious Lord and God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for teaching us today. We pray that you indeed would be our teacher. Uh, that we would not be impressed uh, by my words or the thoughts of the Reformation Study Bible or anything that has been spoken by individuals today, but that we would be brought back to your precepts, that you would turn us to yourself, uh, that you would guide us by your law and give us your Holy Spirit, that we would be your people. Gracious Lord, as we prepare for worship, we pray that you would set our hearts in the right frame. That again, as we are... Uh, pawing over and, uh, and excited about seeing this building and analyzing it. We pray, O oh Lord, for the freedom to worship you in spirit and in truth this afternoon, this morning. Uh, help us to come before you are right with your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fellowship time is down the stairs. You have to go through the narthex uh, entryway uh, to get down the narrow stairway to get downstairs. Hey, brother. What's, well, yeah, that's because I'm, I'm pressured. Good to see you, man. Hey, good to see you. Welcome. How's the drive this morning? Hey, it was long. <laughs> yeah.
Hey, man. I'll, thank you. I'm just going to shake your hand from up there. I like to look down on all the hoi polloi. I'm used to it. Your dad said, hey, I like the setting. Yeah, good. Yeah, dad, go to the orange He goes on Saturday night. Punches a time card. That's the joke. Not so much a joke, but no, no. a joke, yeah. I'm going to turn myself off here.